2: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joha Show podcast. Today on the pod, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau comes to Vancouver to make new announcements and Bolster his flagging polling numbers, but yet no mention on carbon tax relief. Plus, we continue our series The Next Million as we look at whether the region can still attract the next generation of entrepreneur in a city with high taxes, significant regulations, and little industrial land. And BC based tech resources decides to sell its coal business to a Swiss trading giant and two Asian steelmakers. Should this foreign takeover be stopped because of national interests? And delayed flights, never ending security issues, and seats with no legroom. Why has flying turned into the hunger games? And how do we get back to smooth flying again? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show Podcast. It's Tuesday, November 14th. Welcome to the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Hope you're well. Thanks for tuning in on this beautiful Tuesday afternoon. There's no rain, so we'll take it, folks. We've got lots to talk about today. We continue our series, The Next Million, as we look at whether the region can still attract the next generation of entrepreneurs, especially in a region with high taxes, significant regulations, and little industrial land. We'll be talking about that issue at 4 o'clock. The other issue we're going to really focus on today, and you probably heard about it in the news over the last uh, 24 hours or so, BC-based Tech Resources, a massive mining uh, company based right here in Vancouver, has decided to sell its coal business to a Swiss trading giant and two Asian steel makers for about $12 billion. Dollars Canadian should this foreign takeover be stopped be, uh, because of uh, national interests? A Kirkle point from the business in Vancouver will be joining me at four thirty to have that conversation. It is a bigger issue that continues to grow as uh, EVs uh, play a significant role and critical minerals play a significant role. How much of our natural resources should we be providing foreign companies access to? That's at five o'clock. And at five we're going to talk. Sorry, that's at four thirty. At five we're going to talk about delayed flights and never ending security issues and seats with no legroom. Of course, we're talking about why flying is such a huge, huge challenge these days. How did flying turn into the Hunger Games? How do we get it back to uh, get it back to a point where we actually enjoy flying? We're going to look at that issue uh, at 5 o'clock. But first, let's focus on our top story. Today, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Premier David Eby announced a new lithium ion battery cell production plant costing more than a billion dollars and it'll be built right here in Maple Ridge. The province says it's contributing up to $80 million with $970 million coming from the federal government, E1 Moli, and private sources. Here is Prime Minister Trudeau.
0: Today is an important day for the local community, for BC, and for the clean, strong economy we're building right across the country. E1 Moli has picked Maple Ridge to build a major lithium-ion battery cell manufacturing facility. This investment will create up to 350 great new jobs and secure over 100 existing positions. This new E1 Moli facility here in Maple Ridge will produce up to 135 million battery cells per year and become the largest factory in Canada.
2: That was Prime Minister Trudeau from a couple of hours ago, and as he said, it will create 450 permanent jobs, 100 jobs that are already there, and about 350 new jobs. The plant will produce the lithium cell batteries, which are mostly found in products like vacuums, medical devices, uh, and power and garden tools. As part of the agreement, e one will be switching some of its plant operations from natural gas to electricity, and what the province says is part of its role in the clean technology industry. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about today's announcement and Prime Minister Trudeau's uh, challenges that are before him, including affordability and uh, challenges when it comes to the carbon tax and, of course, low polling numbers. Joining me now is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Hello, Richard. Hey, Jeff, thanks for having me. Hey, uh, I wasn't expecting uh, this to be a billion dollar announcement. I was expecting a big announcement, certainly not a billion dollars. What's your take on this?
0: Yeah, so it's a lot of money here 80 million from the province, uh, almost 205 million from the federal government. Uh, the rest comes from these private sources. It's interesting, though, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation already out saying this is a waste of money. The federal government should be investing in people and not multinational battery companies. But we know that this sort of investment will lead to a huge boost in jobs. Uh, make Maple Ridge a leader in this type of technology. You know, These sort of batteries will be used in so many products that we use every day. And investing in this sort of clean technology is something that BC wants to be seen as a global leader in. And getting this sort of Government investment is important, but the private investment part is more significant. The fact that there's more than $720 million in private investment coming to Maple Ridge uh, is a big win uh, for the community, a big win for the province, and will help BC become a significant leader when it comes uh, to this type of uh, battery development and and, uh, uh, building on uh, from that sort of work.
2: Yeah, I think you raised a very good point. I was uh, in August, I was talking to a, um, an automotive executive from Ontario. And I said, you know, this $14 billion subsidy uh, for uh, Volkswagen, when they were to open their plant, I go, can you tell me how this works for taxpayers and taxpayers? Keep in mind, this is one individual's opinion, but he says, look, for when we open that plant, and he was involved in, in broadly in, in sort of these talks, he was saying when you open these plants up, you're going to con- probably create about 1,500 small businesses in and around that plant in regards to supplying that very EV plant with tremendous amount of products and we already have a culture of doing that in Ontario it will easily pay pay off uh, itself in, in many ways now but having said all that do you think in this particular case uh, that this will have much of an impact on the Prime Minister's broader numbers here in British Columbia and across Canada as well because right now we're in the midst of an affordability issue I'm just looking at another poll by the Canadian Taxpayers Federation this is just one more organization keep that in mind but they found 49% of respondents oppose BC's carbon tax tax compared to 24% who supported it. Where are we in this conversation when we're announcing a billion-dollar plant, EV plant, or sorry, a, a lithium-ion plant? At the same time, a good chunk of BC says you got to stop the carbon tax.
0: Yeah, this is small potatoes when it comes to the overall political needle. You
2: know, 140,
0: 100, sorry, 450 full-time permanent jobs here, investing in the clean economy, sure. Investing in lithium-ion batteries, sure. But To move the dial politically, you need something that puts money back into the pockets of all British Columbians. And, And that is something that Pierre Polyev has been speaking about for months and months and months. And on his way through Metro Vancouver yesterday, he spoke about that issue again. And now the focus du jour is around the carbon tax. And unless the Prime Minister is willing to budge on the carbon tax, he is going to continue to struggle hitting that lever. Because... Based on that poll that you just cited, Jazz, British Columbians have clearly tied the carbon tax to affordability. And unless the prime minister comes to the table with some substantial affordability measure, Mm -hmm. money back in your pocket, it's going to be hard to change the dial. So these sort of projects are great. They're big uh, time development. They will add jobs in and around the sector in Maple Ridge, but it doesn't resonate much more than that. It doesn't speak to people in Surrey, uh, in uh Port Moody in Victoria in places where the prime minister uh is attempting to try to engage with voters and the conservatives may feel that they have some wiggle room.
2: And the other challenge I think people forget is that the tax is going to be going up every single year uh, uh, till 2030. So they'll see it at the gas pump number one. But there's a significant reliance uh, by the provincial government on those funds. I think next year it's estimated that the uh, carbon tax will bring in over $3 billion with a B, $3 billion to government. You can't just shut it down. I mean, they literally are in need of those dollars and there's no way you could plug the loss of $3 billion. I think it's becoming clear that they need to find a different
0: way to find affordability and they have gone to the bc hydro rebate in the past jazz and that may be somewhere where the province looks again the challenge there is how do they deal with fortis customers who rely on natural gas who very much would like to see a rebate as well and that would be a provincial program aimed to put money back into people's pockets directly for heating which is what this debate is largely centered on more affordability measures around groceries or gas prices, those ones are a little bit trickier for both the federal government and the province. You know, people, we've seen boutique rebates in the past that you apply through your taxes every year and you get money back uh, through either childcare or activities for kids, programs like that. But often they're not as effective as saying, well, here's X amount of money that will help you pay down your credit card bill this month or help you save on home heating. So it it may be one of those things that we see. The province has more tools to pull here. We may see that in the upcoming budget. The federal government has less options when it comes to saying this is how we are directly going to put money back into your bank account to make life a little bit easier considering cost of living. Groceries may be one target, but it's hard to find where the lever is there considering that that marketplace is so stable. Uh, segregated by different companies, and also the private sector dominates the grocery sector as well.
2: We got about uh, a, a minute or so, but I mean, the other conversation I think we all need to have, is it actually the carbon tax itself changing behavior? Um, you know, those the, the low-hanging fruit of those who are going to buy EVs, they've bought them. But for the average family buying two EVs at 50000 a pop, I'm just taking a number out of the year, which would be probably two Teslas, base, base model Teslas, that's a lot of money. Uh, and most folks can't afford it. So think that the transition is going to occur quickly. That's the other issue. Is it actually changing behavior? And that can also be debated at this point.
0: Yeah, and the logistics are also hard. You know, Some people don't have homes equipped to be able to have a charger. Getting affordable EVs, as you described, more difficult. We know the manufacturers are getting away from that sector because it's becoming too expensive. So it's hard to believe that it's changing behavior. People may be making determinations to go down to one vehicle, but that's hard, too, with all the activities kids may have or the movement you have to do in a city like Metro Vancouver. So I'm not sure it's had the total intended consequences, but there are different ways that they can try to incentivize We'll see. This may be a loser issue for Trudeau, but he needs to find another way to try to plug in that affordability piece so people can really feel that this government can help them save some money on these driving increases and cost of living.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Richard, thank you. My pleasure as always, Josh. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to the show as we continue with our series, The Next Million. The series airs every Tuesday and Thursday at 4 p.m. The series has been looking at Metro Vancouver through the lens of another million people living here. Our population is presently 2.8 million and is expected to hit 3.8 million by 2050. How do we accommodate these new residents and how do we work, live and play in a region with a million more people? Now, recently we looked at the shortage of industrial land here in Vancouver. We also were joined by former BC Premier Christy Clark as we looked at how we should govern the region with a million more people. We've also looked at food production and food security in the context of a region that is adding more people and still wants to protect its agricultural land. Well, today I wanted to focus on uh, entrepreneurship. I wanted to look at whether the region can still attract that next Generation Next generation of entrepreneur in a region with high taxes, significant and sometimes overlapping regulation, and little industrial land. How do we drive innovation, encourage entrepreneurship, and continue to attract the people who will build the companies that will employ local people, who pay local taxes? Well, our next guest certainly has done that. John Gross is the CEO and founder of the Peak Group of Companies. Uh, John launched Peak in 1998, shortly after earning his MBA from SFU. And over the past 25 years, John has grown Peak from a small startup with one product to an international leader in outdoor home improvement products, think decking, railing, decking, railing, and fencing. All told, the company offers 22 product lines with over a thousand uh, individual products. Uh, John, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here, Josh. Uh, lots to talk about. Uh, I think first and foremost, uh, give me a sense in the history of your business. What was it like when you started it? How did you get into the business?
3: Well, if I'd graduated, as you say, from SFU in 1997, and I'd been sifting through the Vancouver Sun, um, the hard copy of that. Um, spread out on my living room floor, looking for opportunities, and there was one one day I remember, probably around uh, November twenty eighth in nineteen ninety seven, uh, and there was all these big business ads that somebody had spent a lot of money on. But there was one little ad that probably couldn't been, have been more than a five or ten dollar ad that says essentially overseas dies and equipment, and it looked more like a personal ad from one guy in overseas communicating a nice sense somehow to me. So I call this guy up. One thing leads to another. And I uh, I find, in this particular case, it was production in China, uh, and I found an opening. It was for essentially... Uh, it was a big cost difference. The products were coming in from the U.S. Uh, into Canada, uh, but I saw an opportunity to make a better product, a much better product at a much lower cost. So within a couple of months, I was on a plane to China, uh, and I'd we'd found the opportunity to make a product that really truly. Uh, was an improvement for the customer, both DIY and contractor customers. And in fact, uh, how we got that product in our first customer, big customer, was Home Depot. Wow! And and you never know what gets you in with a customer. You may have plans, but the customer has always got uh, their own plans. And I got a phone. I've been calling on Home Depot for over a year. And finally, I got a call from them out of the blue on my answering machine because I was working for my apartment. John, get down here. We want to set you up as a supplier. So I go rushing down to their Burnaby buying office. I fill out all these forms. And uh, then I after I signed the forms and they did, then I said, by the way, why did you set me up? And they said, because we remembered that uh, you had this product that you'd added a coating to. Like yeah, I, I guess I had such a cost advantage. I wanted to actually make a better product as well. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, that really mattered to us because over in Nanaimo, BC, which is subjected to salt spray, somebody rem- the building inspectors were banning that rusting product. And somebody at Home Depot, I'd been calling them for months and pe- you know being very pesky mm-hmm. and so on. And somebody in Home Depot remembered this John guy had a post holder that was coated. And one thing led to another, and I was set up as a supplier, and that's how I got going in a kid's apartment back in 1998. So
2: so when you started – so first of all, I I find it fascinating (laughs) you looked at an ad just out of the blue and decided to call somebody in China. So you've
3: decided to move ahead. You're literally – your office is your Kitts apartment then? The office was the Kitts apartment. It was just basically a two-bedroom apartment. Uh, and that's where it all began. And in fact, I was doing five or six million dollars. I don't know how I hadn't been thrown out a year or two before. I was doing five million dollars of business out of that residential high rise. And I remember uh, one of the most uh, uh, memorable stories for me was when you start a business. One of the challenges is is finding talent. No one really knows who you are. How could mm-hmm. they? And uh, so <clears throat> there was a, at that time we didn't have our own warehouse. Uh, Today we do Mm -hmm, have lots of warehouses, but back then we used third-party warehouses. And the guy who was running that third-party warehouse for Peak had always impressed me. So one day we were having lunch, and uh, he was bemoaning the fact that the company wanted to move him back somewhere into eastern Canada. He was a West Coast guy, Mm -hmm. lower mainland guy. He didn't want to go back there. So I sensed my opening, and I I said, uh, look, Wanting to join Peak. I knew he liked outdoor home improvement products. He loved home improvement. And so over lunch, he said, okay, I'll do it. I don't want to go back east. I, I like home improvement. I'll join. Well, I hadn't told him that I worked for my apartment, and I remember to this day, and so does he, that when he showed up on his first day, and instead of seeing this high-rise or this big corporate head office, he finds himself standing in, at the bottom of an apartment building. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so up he came. He came into the room. There was a, a couple of employees, like two or three, a couple of desks and chairs, <laughs> and he's, he's looking at this situation going, what on earth am I got myself wow. into? Uh, but you know what? It worked out. That guy—that uh, was 20 years ago. Simon Walker. Yeah. Uh, he's now become the executive vice president and number two guy in Peak. He's in charge of all of our innovation. We're a highly innovative company, all of supply chain. So you have to find a way. You have to overcome challenges, and you have to make it fun. And so that's uh, sort of how we, you know, got going.
2: So Kit's apartment is where it all started. <clears throat> Do you have roughly an estimate as to how
3: many employees you have right now? Well, uh, all told, we have about 130 employees. Um, we have a, a, a business model where, uh, because we uh, source products, we manufacture products in, in Canada, mm-hmm. uh, but we also source products from countries around the world. We, our commitment is to bring our customers the best value. And so we do the... in the innovation, the engineering, the design, the supply chain, the logistics, the marketing, the packaging, everything we do in Canada. In fact, most of it we do right here in BC. But in terms of factories and raw materials and so on, some of those products we make in Canada and some of them elsewhere. So, so our model is that we don't tend to own those factories per se, the bricks and mortar. We own the ideas, we own the dyes and equipment and so on. But in today's world, You probably have all seen this. Uh, There can be suddenly a a company can have favorable trading status with Canada or the U.S. or Mm -hmm. Australia where we do business. And you can wake up tomorrow morning and that has all changed. And there's now a 25% or 50% or 100% tariff or duty. And if you have bricks and mortar and manufacturing and all the rest in that country, it could take you years. And meanwhile, you're paying huge fines and fees, which – you have to pass on to customers. And our commitment is to provide our customers with the best possible value, affordable prices. And so that's part of our business model. So my question
2: to you is you've built this amazing business. Could you do it in 2015? What I mean by that is another million people moving here, logistics, moving people around, moving goods and services around. Heavy regulation still I'm assuming yes, taxation that comes with it, yes. limited industrial, and we can get into yes. some of that a little later yeah. but could you could a John Gross will there be a John Gross in two thousand and fifty uh, in your mind with another million people living
3: here there won't be one, there'll be many i, I, I you know what I would answer that question with a resounding yes. Yes, an entrepreneur. It, in fact, it's never been a better time than right now for an entrepreneur to start a successful business here, right here in the Lower Mainland. I mean, you, you look at it, first of all, the Lower Mainland is is just a, it's a wonderful location. There are friendly people here, talented people, people who want to join a company, a company that will make a difference. As a startup company, you have the advantage of being, uh, first of all, um, nimble. So you're up. So usually, as a smaller company, you're up against bigger companies. That by the time you've made a decision this afternoon, they've got it on some future agenda six months down the road. You have that advantage of a small entrepreneur. You can make you can make decisions and you can make investments so much faster, and that goes to your advantage. But then you lever, you layer into that the Lower Mainland itself. And mm-hmm. what a wonderful place. I truly believe, I mean, I myself was given the opportunity in the Lower Mainland. And I, I, I'm i not so sure our company would have been successful if I'd started it somewhere else. All the talent, the universities, the people, the friendliness, the openness, uh, the infrastructure we have here. Of course, we have to have a lot more, and I, rec- I think we all recognize that. Uh, the willingness to do business, the uh, where we're located on the Pacific Rim, It's a wonderful place to start start a business. I feel so strongly about this, in fact, that just recently we announced um, in conjunction and partnership with Simon Fraser University um, to uh, fund a quarter million dollars over the next 10 years called the Peak Product Startup Experience Mm -hmm. uh, to help young aspiring uh, entrepreneurs to be able to realize their entrepreneurial dreams. So we're putting our mouth where Uh, our money where our mouth is. We think it's a wonderful opportunity, and I think it's a great place to start a business right now. Welcome back to the show.
2: If you're just joining us, we are speaking to John Gross, founder and CEO of Peak Products. Um, Interesting entrepreneurial story. Uh, Peak Products, of course, uh, sells decking, railings, and fencing. Uh, All told, the company offers about 22 product lines with over 1,000 individual products and places like uh, a Home Depot. And it's hard to believe uh, that the company started all based on an ad in the Vancouver sun well over 25 years ago. Uh, John, uh, prior to the break, we were talking uh, a little bit about can a future entrepreneur be able to do what you did based on some of the challenges we have with another million people moving here, as I said, limited land taxation, regulation challenges, all of those types of things. Now, For your products, you do need a warehouse, Uh, and and my understanding is you've also ended up opening a warehouse in Calgary instead of Vancouver. Walk me through that decision. You're a proud Vancouverite, proud British Columbian. As you say, you started your business out of an apartment in Kitsilano, but uh, you had to open up a warehouse in Calgary rather than here. Explain that to me.
3: Yes, you're right. I, I was born in Vancouver and grew up here in Vancouver. And, of course, Peak started here, and our original warehouse was here in Vancouver. Um, during the pandemic, our, the demand for our products, think of outdoor living products, people working from home, uh, it more than doubled and and there's no end in sight even after the pandemic. So our warehousing and distribution needs also more than doubled and we can see huge requirements to increase even from there uh, in the years to come. So uh, in the last couple of years, because this demand came so suddenly, uh, we had to uh, essentially rent satellite warehouse locations to augment the sp- space of our lower mainland distribution center, we simply didn't ran out of space at times too. Uh, so our instinct and 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 uh, goal was to find a much larger distribution space in the lower mainland. Uh, the difficulty was that I guess in the years that had leading up to this, that that land costs had gone up so significantly that it, it was simply was unaffordable for us. As I mentioned, our commitment is to provide customers with products of of great value, unmatched value, and our distribution and warehousing costs represent a significant portion of our total costs. And frankly, uh, for us to take on this massive increase in distribution and warehousing space due to what was happening in in the Lower Mainland, that we were faced with the uh, just untenable uh, prospect of of having to build that into our cost structure, and and I think that would be uh, not the right choice for our customers. As it turned out, so we knew we had to look elsewhere. Um, and as it turned out, our exclusive customer Home Depot uh, had built their uh, Western Canada distribution center uh, in Calgary. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, in the you know weeks and months that followed. We then explored the possibility of building a very large distribution center in Calgary. And uh, so we were able to do that uh, in a fairly short amount of time, in about a year, which uh, may sound like a lot. But if you're starting from a, a bare piece of land and have to do all the work on it, uh, including going through a very uh, harsh winter, that's actually a very uh, fast timeline mm-hmm. and at a very reasonable cost. Uh, so it ended up you know, working out for us. Uh, I can say that, uh, you know, as a growing company, we'll need more distribution space. And I hope, I truly hope that land costs and space costs come down to a a more affordable level for a company like Peak. And in a heartbeat, I would invest in more distribution, expanded distribution facilities here in the lower mainland. I think one, uh, there's a few a few good things that have come from this is that with a smaller location that we had here and couldn't afford a bigger one, uh, that we were, uh, I guess, at risk of, of non-domestic suppliers bringing their product into Canada. Mm. And that didn't sit well with us. And so instead, um, with our new facility and being more competitive and having more space, we have turned the thing around and now we're shipping product into other markets, including the U.S. And that has, in turn, created jobs for us right here in the Lower Mainland. We do so much of the innovation, the product design, the supply chain, logistics, marketing, online, all these different things. We've created more and more jobs thanks to the fact that, you know, we're able to grow our company and, in fact, have the distribution capabilities to do all that. Yeah. So, of course, uh, nothing would make me happier uh, than be able to to be able to open a larger distribution center even still on top of what we have. I hope that day can come. I hope real estate prices and land prices and space prices can come down and be affordable for us. I'm going to give you 30 more seconds here. Sure. Final message to entrepreneurs. Final message to entrepreneurs. You know know what? I I think it is the best time ever to start a business. Let me say um, starting a business is – it's an exhilarating experience when you can bring a team of people together and and achieve something that, that others haven't. And that's the whole idea. You can't just be me too. It is a wonderful feeling to watch a talented group of people. Not It's not you. It's the team of people who make these magical things happen. Talented people, they want to join a company where they can make a difference. And that's what Peak is all about. But there's one thing that's even more special. When you take bold steps, when you build a business, when you build a successful business, that allows you to give back to the community right here in the Lower Mainland. And I'll tell you, I can say from this, from personal experience, there is no greater feeling, no greater reward, not just for you, but for for your team to give back to so many worthwhile causes right here in the Lower Mainland. John, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you.
2: That is John Gross, founder and CEO of Peak Products. You're listening, you're listening to The Jazz Joe Hall Show back after the break. Vancouver-based Tech Resources has agreed to sell its coal business to a Swiss commodities trading giant named Glencore and two Asian steel makers for a whopping $12 billion. Uh, that transaction will require federal approval and it will be closely scrutinized by Ottawa uh, as well. Now, Tech was founded in 1913. It's Canada's largest diversified mining company and a major employer right here in British Columbia and one of the oldest miners in the country as well. Glencore uh has agreed to uh, purchase 77% seventy-seven percent of Tech's coal business. The rest will be uh, purchased by Japan's Nippon Steel and South Korea's POSCO. Now, the long list of commitments Glencore has made, included, including it will maintain jobs here in Canada, make billions in capital expenditures over the next few years, and increase spending on research and development. Well, to help us make sense, of all this is Kirk LaPointe, publisher and executive editor for Business in Vancouver. Kirk, thank you for joining us today.
4: My pleasure, Jeff.
2: So what do you make of of this uh, announcement that Tech Resources, a big BC company, uh, agreeing to sell its coal business to uh, a Swiss commodities giant and two Asian steel makers? What do you make of this? It's
4: a bit early to tell on the sense of whether this is uh, problematic for our country in terms of... Uh, Having control over um, and and ownership over uh, over the resource sector in this case, Um, you know, Glencore already does own quite a lot in this country. Um, They've had uh, at times a bit of a troubled history in terms of uh, of their operations that I think has concerned some people. But they, um, you know, they are promising uh, to be really good corporate citizens. to you know, uh, infuse uh, lots of money for investment for research and development, and to preserve jobs here. And I think that that tends to be where we uh, we draw the line these days in terms of deciding as a country whether we want to permit further foreign ownership.
2: Do you think we make it too tough in this country for resource uh, uh, companies to to operate, whether it be regulations, whether it be um, protests and environmental regulations. Do you think we're scaring some of these companies away? Well,
4: there's no question we're scaring investment away. Uh, I think that um, it has to be a a marquee player like tech that is going to attract um, international development because it is such a sophisticated company. But for earlier stage companies, there's no question that people don't see Canada as a good place to bring their investment. Um, Tax competitiveness is pretty terrible here. Regulation is quite stern. Uh, we we seem to try to be world leaders in a lot of areas where it's not necessary to be the toughest. You can be the you know eighth and ninth toughest and still be just fine in terms of what you're doing. And and I think um, you can see that that capital uh, coming into this country has uh, has weakened. Uh, compared to other territories,
2: mm-hmm. I do worry sometimes. Uh, and you're right. Uh, you know, Glencore's got a uh, a record of owning other uh, mining firms uh, and uh, other other um, assets, uh, and they have tremendous talent within those in that company. I always worry that when when, when uh, companies from abroad come over, uh, they get the inter- intellectual property or the key executives, and they eventually they sell or sometimes move some of that intellectual property. In this case, it's mining. But you can't. But I always worry when foreign ownership comes in, eventually Canada loses something along the way. Um, Now, in this case, uh, beyond just talent, uh, and this is metallurgical coal. uh, It's met coal used for things like steel, not thermal coal, which is used for heating around the world. Um, And it's not a critical mineral, but at the same time, do you think we need to toughen our rules or at the very least make it difficult for those who wish to buy some of these strategic assets, particularly in and around mining?
4: Yeah, it's a it's a case by case uh, area, and I and I think that that's what we've started to experience is that perhaps now we're we're getting greater and greater understanding of what are the criteria in order to uh, in order to permit uh, foreign ownership or deny it. Uh, you know we've you know we, we've had foreign investment review agencies. We've we've had a, a raft of ways in order to set some kind of guardrail. On whether um, entities can come into this country and and uh, and, and buy um, some of the, especially at, at scale, some of the uh, industries, um, and and I think what we're what we're experiencing now is yet another wave of this. But but I go back to the point that really what, what we've been really lacking in this is, uh, is is the kind of tax treatment of this in such a way that we we don't make it um, all that appetizing. For uh, international firms to come in when they have other opportunities to invest globally.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, I know uh, the Globe is reporting, the Globe and Mail rep- is reporting that the uh, BC Premier David Eby uh, said earlier this year, I believe it was in June, that he had concerns yep. about Glencore buying tech's coal operation because of uh, Glencore's past offenses, which were related to bribery and corruption. Uh, now, it's important to note that Premier Eby doesn't have the authority to block the bid for tech, although he did suggest, according to the article, that he would petition Ottawa to, to do so. Um, I, I, broadly speaking, do you think we can turn the clock a little bit in this province where we will get perhaps greater investment once again, uh, not just in mining but in forestry, LNG and others? Because it, it seems we are uh, almost at yeah, the point where it's like a lo- lost decade here in our province and, and growing in, in time.
4: Yeah, I... Go back to um, uh, a recent project that the Business Council of British Columbia undertook, and it had to do with the impact of Clean BC as an initiative on the economy and what it does in terms of turning the clock back. Uh, and, and essentially, uh, over the next uh, 15 years or 10 to 15 years, looking at, uh, at what the initiative is going to do in terms of. Uh, weakening the economy and putting us in a less strategically competitive environment. Again, from a tax treatment standpoint. So, you know, I think we're still um, we're still finding that we're not uh, necessarily uh, uh, as productive an economy and and as uh, efficient an economy when it comes to tax purposes. And I and I think that's just uh, it doesn't much matter uh, what David Eby is is contemplating in all of this. Um, he has his own issues to, to answer for in the province, but I think again, back to your point, um, review of this uh, is is not David Eby's uh, territory, and and I think you can see that that in a lot of ways he he will say this in the way that he talked about you know the Bank of Canada needing to stop uh, raising interest rates. It's it's a little bit out of his lane, but it's popular politics, you know, and. and he, and he's got a good nose for that. <laughs> that.
2: That that is true. Kirk, as always, thank you for your time today.
4: My pleasure, Jazz. Have a good day.
2: Let's talk travel. Well, specifically air travel. And let's face it, air travel sucks. Think about delayed flights, never-ending security issues, seats with no legroom. Flying has turned into the Hunger Games. And how do we get get back to a point where it's smooth flying again? Well, recently, legal scholar and Vanderbilt law professor Ganesh Sitaraman wrote the book Why Flying is Miserable and how to fix it. Flying is so miserable for so many of us that the notion of fixing it barely seems an option. In fact, J.D. Power's 2023 North American Airline Satisfaction Study found passenger dissatisfaction on the rise from the year before. Uh, Mr. Uh, Satharaman's book is a fascinating investigation into the effects of airline deregulation. So how do you fix it? Joining me now to discuss the issue is Clara Newell, who's the president and founder of Travel Best Bets. Clara, thank you for joining us today.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure, Jez. This is a really, really interesting topic to chat about.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, when I was looking at uh, the good professor's uh, book, uh, Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It, I thought, you know, the professor does have a point, uh, and it's something I think we've all been going through. Uh, In your mind, I mean, you've been in the industry for so long. um, When do you think things turned in regards to travel not being as fun as it once was?
1: Well, I think you can go back to About 1978 is really when the deregulation of airlines really took place and kind of went from there. I remember my parents, and and I can vaguely remember it myself, um, explaining how when we emigrated from Scotland on Ward Air, it was just such a wonderful experience. The, The seats were big, everyone dressed up, you used real china and cutlery. You were served meals and drinks, and it was just a really elevated experience compared to what it is now. Now, um, it is completely different. You're basically paying for every little aspect that you want. Some people say it's nickel and diming, others mm-hmm. are happy to just go bare bones and just pay for what they need, but it has definitely changed. And I, I'm not, uh, I, when I was reading through this, didn't feel like it was as bad as the author was putting out there, but I completely get his drift.
2: Um, now, the author basically says that, you know, there was a stable uh, time in the industry where basically the industry was heavily regulated by government. They treated it like a utility, basically. You know, there was set costs. The airlines generally made money. Uh, c- customers uh, knew what they were paying for and then this whole deregulation started. Uh, as you were saying, do you think it's been better or, or worse? I mean, we can argue that the, the, the travel isn't as fun as it used to be, but one could also argue travel has gotten cheaper and you can pick yep. in time and much more flexible in timing and in, and, in, and in pricing. So would you say it's a better time or do you think it's worse?
1: Well, from my perspective, uh, I've been watching rates for being over 30 years in this industry some of the destinations are as cheap now as my parents paid when they emigrated back in nine, January of 1974. So you can imagine how um, things would have to change. I think that because, yes, seats have gotten smaller, and, but it's become much, much more efficient on many routes. It's almost, in my mind, like going on a bus. You just have to, you know, it, it, it's way more crowded, but the prices... Some of these prices, I mean, to, to Europe, um, for short-haul flights and things, especially here domestically because of all the competition here in Canada with some of the low-cost carriers that are, are prevalent that weren't pre-pandemic, Porter, Lynx, Canada Jet Lines, Flair, There's tons of competition. And so when there's more competition, yes, it's slightly, slightly more unstable, but the prices are incredible.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, And where do you think the industry is going? I mean, at the same time, in a post-COVID world, you're seeing some new airlines, fledgling airlines launch, um, yet you still have some problems with them. If one of their planes goes down, they only own uh, three or four planes at the end of the day. Um, Where are things going with the industry? Is it going to continue like this? Or do you think there's ways that the industry itself could improve in regards to customer
3: service?
1: Oh, there's there's no question there's a lot of improvement that could be made by the airlines. Here in Canada, we, of course, have so many situations where things can go mechanical, there can be a lack of staffing, and, and delays are one of the things that have really kind of become a norm. So um, I do think there's tons and tons of room for improvement. And the reality is, though, is that we're going to have a situation where it's this you know, every every airline out there trying to carve their market share, and that does cause instability uh, until there's kind of an even keel. Since I've been in the industry, I've probably watched, I bet you, 40 airlines come and go here in Canada alone around the world. It, I mean, it's a very, very tough industry to make money. It's why if you are ever booking on a new carrier or uh, an ultra-low-cost carrier, I always say – do the things that you need to do to protect yourself. One is pay on a credit card so that you have some backup if services are not rendered. If they decide to change their schedule on you, say they were you know gung-ho coming out and going five or six times a week, and then go down to one, well, that that's probably going to throw your entire trip in a tailspin, and they'll likely give you the option to change your date, or hopefully cancel, which we have seen. Um, But this is the other thing that I always encourage people to do is to get insurance and that that has something that includes cancellation and interruption so that if something goes sideways with the airline that you're completely protected. There are policies that came out during COVID that are um, canceled for any reason. And there's there's not lots of those policies out there, but they are out there that you can do. The other thing is, is that because of the fact that things aren't as comfortable as they would be um, you know, back in the 70s during the heyday, if you have the option to pick your seats in advance, if you have the option to pay your luggage in advance, um, pay for your meals in advance, do all of that. Pack your own little comfort kit. The days of you getting you know, the blanket and the pillow, the eye mask, the lip balm, a toothbrush, all of that, those days are gone unless you're in business class um, so, and, and then the whole, I mean, we're talking about airlines, but the whole system now um, has the option for you to kind of shorten lineups at the airport, and so I encourage people to do that as well. Book those express security appointments. Do your Arrive Canada advance declaration when you're heading back to Canada. Do it all ahead of time. Get the QR code so you can show it and get in shorter lines. Um, unfortunately, I know that that doesn't always help when you're going over long weekends or or holidays when there are tons of lines. Every aircraft is full. Um, but if, you have, like I say, if you have the ability to make things better for yourself by booking free, you know, getting on the aircraft early, so like advanced boarding, and you want that, pay for it if there is that option. Because you can get that great service. You just have to
2: pay for what you want. Yeah. Um, the airlines use a lot more the hub and spoke model uh, where you 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 land in one sort of major center that is their major yeah. center that's where most of their planes land and from there you're able to go to other regions. Should that system change because perhaps it impacts less so here in Vancouver in a big major cent- urban center but many smaller communities Uh, their service hasn't gotten any better. In fact, it's got a lot worse in regards to availability. Even for us here in Vancouver, you got to go to certain hubs to travel to other parts of the world because that's how airlines Mm -hmm. have done so. I mean, if we did away with that hub-and-spoke model, would that be a a net benefit in regards to just service, availability, all those types of things?
1: That would be really lovely, but you'd probably end up paying more. These um, hub-and-spoke models... They work primarily in Europe, and we also see it in the States so much so. So you would have London, Paris, Frankfurt as those hubs in Europe, and you'd in, in North America, Atlanta, Dallas, um, New York City. So that, it's tough to go away from that because of the fact – we even see it here in Canada because it's just so efficient for the airlines – I'll give you an example. In Canada, WestJet has really focused on their Calgary gateway as their main hub. And that wasn't the case even just a couple of years ago, but now they're really, really focusing on the West, but that is really through Calgary. So there's some options that we, even from Vancouver, would have to get to Calgary before heading to, say, Tokyo that they're flying to, or Paris or London, year-round, these types of things. So I don't see this going away. Yeah, it would be really lovely if we could have some of these smaller routes serviced because it's a nightmare for the people who live in smaller towns who don't have the service and can't even get to some of those hubs without driving two, three hours. So it's um, it's just the nature of the way that the airlines are able to make money.
2: Well, uh, whatever it may it is, I really hope they fix it because <laughs> Christmas time is yeah. coming. We know it's going to get busy. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tough t- it's tough traveling any time but Christmas certainly is one of those times that are very challenging. Uh I really appreciate yeah. your time to talk about this uh, today Claire because uh we all love to travel but sometimes it's a little more challenging than others that's for sure. Thanks. Oh,
1: I totally agree. <laughs> Thanks so go. much Jess. <laughs>
2: Thanks Claire.